I'm Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And, you know, there is no question, folks, that our society stigmatizes aging, but we are here to say enough. Growing Bolder is about taking chances, having fun, getting fit, and proving that it's never too late to create the life that you want. So turn up the radio, folks, because we're going to prove it again today with guests like Anne Karf, a brilliant English sociologist and author whose thoughts on aging and its possibilities will inspire you to start growing bolder. Also, we have a pep talk from one of the world's top motivational speakers who quit the gang life, left poverty behind, built a fortune, and now he's helping others do the same. Plus, relentless forward progress. That's the mantra that one man adopted when colon cancer tried to take his life. We'll tell you how he fought back to scale new heights and learn one of life's most valuable lessons. And what if you were not only related to, but lived with a famous American who helped transform our society and you didn't even know it? Well, that's exactly what happened to one of our guests. And would you believe that one of the world's top senior triathletes survived 10 bouts with six different types of cancer requiring over 20 surgeries. All of that's today, right now, on Growing Boulder. Well, our next guest is proof that, yes, anything is possible, and we're all more powerful than even we know. This guy was once homeless, Mark. He was even living in a battered women's shelter for a while. He, he smoked weed at the age of eight. He dealt crack by the time he was just 14 years old, no clue there this guy was going to be a success at all. Yeah, not the end of the story that we would expect. Today, he's a best-selling author, a world-renowned motivational speaker. He's a personal development coach and a sales training professional who works with celebrities, athletes, executives, and young people who are trying to break free from the life that he escaped. Let's find out not only how he's created a life envied by millions, but how he can help you as well. Let's welcome Johnny Wimbry. Hey, Johnny, how are you? Hey, thank you so much for having me on the call. You guys have definitely done your homework. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. Uh, there's a lot to say about you, and we want to hear as much of it as we can. You actually wrote a book, Johnny, about your amazing transformation called From the Hood to Doing Good. And, and you're right that your turning point came at the age of 18 when a friend was murdered and that at first you wanted revenge. But then something happened. What was that? Well, at that particular funeral, as a matter of fact, I was watching the Super Bowl in 1993, and I was 18 years old and got a phone call during the halftime and basically was, was one of my homeboys calling to tell me that one of my other friends uh, was murdered, and I actually knew the guy who murdered him. Um, so long story short, the night of the wake, the day before the funeral, the family comes together, and they kind of did a counseling session with us, and then we all went to the wake, and his mother had actually got up in front of the casket and said, I forgive the young man who killed my son. Mm. Now, here I am sitting in a church with a gun and having the mindset of retaliation, and something happened. You know, there was an epiphany, if you will. I just said to myself, I don't love him as much as his mother loved him. And if his mother has found forgiveness, you know, then who am I? And that was a major turning point for me because that night I walked up and I gave my gun to a preacher, and I said, I don't want to live like this anymore. Um, and it was, that was a major, major point in my life. Johnny, it's, it's like your life is about major turning points. I mean, most of us think people don't change. You are who you are. But do you think that you had some kind of unique personal qualities or, or characteristics that, that, that have helped you be able to make these dramatic transformations? I absolutely believe that there's nothing different about me other than the fact of what I've been exposed to. You know, I, I, I believe uh, my good friend Gary Eby, he says that change is a door that can only be opened from the inside. I just happened to be conscious. I had a different hunger and a different level of appreciation for the opportunity for change. And it, it's funny that you use that word because my whole message is based on choices and change. And, you know, I believe that, you know, we make choices every day, all day. And that's a part of the character building process. And I, I think the difference between me and most people or what happened to me was I began to control the process of what built my character. And in my book, I talk about it. You can't control the process of character building. You can't stop it. It's always going on. The way that you're listening to my voice right now, it's building your character. The way that you're not listening to my voice right now, it's building your character. So you can't control the process 
of character building, but you can control what you allow to build your character. We're talking with Johnny Wimbry, folks, who is internationally uh, respected and well-known as a guy who not only changed his life, but is now helping others change their lives in, in many, many ways. Uh, and Johnny, in our business, we encounter people every day who reach a certain age that are unfulfilled. They want passion. They want significance. They want reinvention. Uh, they don't have to escape uh, the barrio, the mean streets like you did, but they have to escape the constant bombardment of our media and our culture, which tells us every day that at some point it's too late, we're too old, we're destined to become frail and powerless. How do we overcome that? How can your message to young, younger people translate to people over the age of 45? Well, here's the deal. If you're listening to this station right now, you've already started the process. I believe that, you know, I call it flipping the switch. And when you flip the switch, you know, it just starts the game. It starts the process of what I call increase mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially, whatever it is, you have to desire increase. And listening to a program like this is starting the process. So I'm not saying I'm preaching to the choir, but I am, I, I am confirming that you're at the right place at the right time, and maybe someone has led you to this message, this particular interview, and it is the process. You know, it's the process of starting. You know, the you know the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. And hearing a you know hearing a program like this is the first step. I wouldn't be where I am right now if there wasn't a process, if there wasn't an introduction. And I think that people you know kind of are misled you know, that that you have to you know basically become a you know reformed person from the inside out to start the process. And that's a lie from the pits of hell. That's not the truth. The truth is you just get started. You know, I love watching Nemo, uh, uh, Finding Nemo because Dory in that movie, you know, her message was so powerful. She said, just keep swimming. You just keep swimming. You know, so sometimes when you get there is none of your business. Sometimes how you're going to get there is none of your business. What you make your business is just get started. And we hear your story, and we hear Dory's story, and, and in the back of our minds, we think good for them, but we don't really get that it relates directly to us as well. You know, we're all trying to leave a legacy behind, but, but a lot of people think it's impossible without a lot of money and without a lot of opportunity to make a difference. What, what do you say to that? Well, here's what I say to that. Get off that frequency. You know, change the channel. If I ask you right now, could you listen to this radio show without a device? The answer is no. But it doesn't mean that the radio show the, you know, the Internet waves or the satellite waves, whatever it is. It doesn't mean that it still exists. You know, a TV is still a TV whether it's on or off. And here's my, here's my point. My point is you're the television. You know, you have to tune into the frequency. You know, the frequency of hate is around you right now. The frequency of love is around you right now. The frequency of success, the frequency of failure, it's all around you right now. It's around me right now. Nothing changed for me until I changed my channel. Although failure is still around me right now, it's standing right next to me, I'm just not on that channel. So it's not about someone being better than you, someone being, you know, more, you know, uh, you know maybe God's favor is on them more than it's on you. You just got to switch the channel, and the channel is I deserve it. The channel is where I come from doesn't have to dictate where I'm going. The channel is I forgive myself. Johnny Wimbry had to look in the mirror one day and say, Johnny, I forgive you. I forgive you. And that was me changing the channel. You must win from the inside. Winning begins within. Man, do you get this guy, folks? Uh, this is a, a, a young man who changed his entire life and is now helping millions of others. You know, not only you know, become wealthy uh, by being successful, but even more importantly than that, finding significance uh, in their own life. You know, uh, the program is called Growing Bolder, Johnny, as you know. Oh, we, we like people to, to get out there and take calculated risk, uh, you know, throw things against the wall and see what happens. We love you because you are so bold. In fact, you say it's all about the hostile takeover, and it may not be what people think it is. Explain what you mean by that. The hostile take takeover is basically this. I believe in my heart that today someone's going to be successful. There's going to be a black person, a white person, a female, a male, an Asian, an African, uh, you know, people from all over the world today, on this day, will tap into some level of success. And I believe in my heart that if it's going to be someone, then it might as well be me. 
Now, that's a very bold statement. And some may say, Johnny, that comes across a bit arrogant, but listen to me very closely. Arrogance is when you think you're better than someone else. Confidence is when you understand no one is better than you. Let me repeat that. Arrogance is when you think you're better than someone else. Confidence is when you understand no one is better than you. Now, I'm an ex-drug dealer. I have a brother serving 40 years in prison right now, and the only difference is I didn't get caught. So I am not in any shape, form, or fashion saying I'm better than anyone. As a matter of fact, millions of people who hear this interview, I would say 90% of you are more qualified than I am according to the system's definition of what qualified is. You should be getting interviewed, not me. Thank God that we're not governed by a system that dictates what true success is. And all I'm saying is this. I don't believe that it's still not possible for me based on my past. Here's my message to you. I have a lot of mess in my life. I screwed up a lot of things. I let a lot of people down. I hurt a lot of people. But my mess has become my message. It is a hostile takeover. It's a hostile takeover. It's Johnny taking over Johnny because Johnny Wimbry is the only person who can hold Johnny Wimbry back. People try to figure out, you know, who's the enemy? Who's holding me back? It's his fault. You know, my father put a gun to my head when I was 13 years old. He said, I love you, but I will kill you. And I had to make a choice. I heard I love you and I heard I kill you. I chose to hear I love you. That was the process of, of, of me just tuning in to the fact that, listen, I've got to take this thing over in some shape, form, or fashion. In the end, Johnny Wimbry has to win. And I had to become the motivational speaker to myself. I had to encourage myself. You know, in the Bible, it said David encouraged himself. So listen, the hostile takeover is coming from within. It's you encouraging yourself. It has nothing to do with being dominating. It has nothing to do with stepping on other people. It has everything to do with you stepping up, becoming bold, becoming that inner winner, understanding that your enemy is in a me, inside me. Johnny Wimbry is the only person who can hold me back. So, yes, it's a hostile takeover. Amen, Brother Johnny. That is the gospel according to Johnny Wimbry. Johnny, we got to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. And, folks, if you'd like some more information about this amazing young man, uh, check out Johnny Wimbry. That's W-I-M-B-R-E-Y, johnnywimbry.com. Relentless forward progress kind of sounds like a growing bolder slogan, and in a way it is. It's also the personal mantra of a husband and wife who faced their fears together and came out on top. That's next on Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare, providing the guidance you need to stay informed and stay connected through COVID-19. Now offering tips, ideas, and critical resources at growingbolder.com slash COVID. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, and it's time now for our Surviving and Thriving segment, because with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in its aftermath. Yeah, we want to introduce you now to a guy named Jeremy Jungling, who was a newlywed running coach in the best shape of his life when he learned that he had colon cancer. Jeremy and his wife, Claire, were stunned, but they committed to working together to get past this potentially deadly diagnosis. Diagnosis. How did they do it? Well, the only way you can, one step at a time. Oh, I need a mixer spoon. Are you going to whip something up? Jeremy and Claire Jungling have joined Survivor Summit in an attempt to climb Mount Kilimanjaro and to celebrate the fact that Jeremy is cancer-free and their lives are back on track after a difficult battle. The Junglings met on Match.com, and even before meeting in person, the sparks were flying. And I knew from his emails, I said, this is it. I told all my friends, I said, if he's anything like his emails, plan on us getting married in October. Go ahead and put it on your calendars. 
And then instead we got married in July before that, <laughs> within five months. All right, today's workout is gonna be a doozy. The two share a passion for running and volunteer as coaches for a Couch to 5K program, inspiring and training men and women of all ages and all fitness levels to get moving. They have a never-ending energy to help people and to motivate people to help themselves. Our slogan is relentless forward progress. He has always said that from day one. Always go forward, always be positive and make the best of the situation. More than a slogan, it's Jeremy's personal philosophy, a mantra that was about to be tested. Their honeymoon was barely over when Jeremy began experiencing abdominal pain and overall weakness. Claire encouraged him to get tested. My doctor called and told me there was a mass in my colon and that it had to come out immediately. Um, I asked my doctor a couple times if it was cancer. She, I got the idea quickly she didn't want to say those words. So I kind of asked her in a backwards way, well, can it be anything but cancer? And she said no. Um, and then my next call, of course, was to Claire um, to tell her, you know, what was going on. And um, you feel almost guilty. I felt like I had let her down, especially being relatively newly wed. And I just remember... I we were sitting in bed and just, I couldn't get out of bed because I thought, I don't know how many more moments, how many more mornings I get to wake up with him. And I remember being so mad at God because I thought, you just gave him to me. You know, we're, we were both older and we got married and um, we've been through a lot. And I thought, why didn't you let us meet earlier? If you would have taken away from me, why, why now? Give me more time with him. And uh, I, I spent a lot of hours late at night just reading articles and trying to find even the slightest um, advantage over cancer, you know, whether it's exercising more, eating right, whatever I could do to increase my odds to be around, um, we were going to try to do whatever we could. Jeremy had colon resection surgery, spending nearly two weeks in the hospital. Soon after surgery, Claire was helping Jeremy walk in the halls of the hospital when they passed in front of a large mirror. I remember standing there in that mirror with Jeremy in his hospital gown, like barely able to talk. They were making him walk and it was miserable for him. And I'm in like, like pajamas. I mean, like, I looked homeless, like I looked terrible. And, um, and I remember standing there and like the juxtaposition of that image to our wedding photos from a year before. But I was like, that's what it's about. Like I didn't sign up for this for some glorious, awesome life. Like I signed up for this for, you know, sickness and health and richer and poorer and everything and that to me was just like and that's what we're doing and that's it that's the next step and then the next step after that will be better <laughs> he's like what is that baby it was the jungling family motto in action relentless forward progress jeremy's surgery was a success but he still needed six months of chemotherapy doctors told him he couldn't run during that period and I remember those exact words. He said, forget about all that stuff. And I was like, I'm not going to forget about all that stuff. Two weeks after surgery, Jeremy took his first run. And I had just had a bunch of colon removed, and it probably wasn't the best idea, but it was glorious because I felt I was running again. I was alive. You know, I was really celebrating life. He began to lift weights and to ride his bike. As his strength returned, his short runs grew into longer runs, and soon he was running 5Ks, then 10Ks, half marathons, marathons, and even a 50K ultramarathon. His cancer was gone, and his desire to live was stronger than ever. Um, I used to always say, oh, and you know, when I get older, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that. Well, now I've actually started to do those things, and it's kind of started a snowball effect of where I'm gonna keep doing those things, I'm gonna live while I can live, and I'm not gonna put stuff off. So the two signed up for Survivor Summit and joined the team of 16 determined to reach the frozen summit of the world's highest freestanding mountain and to send a message of hope to others battling a frightening diagnosis. There are all kinds of things that could happen, but we're so motivated by by the, the idea of Survivor Summit and by the names on our flags um, and the fact that we've made it as far as we have. We're on day five, we're two days from Summit. Um, it's gonna take a lot to keep us from getting to the top of that mountain. After six days of climbing, the team is ready for the ultimate test, a final nine hour climb to the summit. I feel fantastic, I'm ready to go. 
We've, uh, we've had good group going up. We've taken our time. We've worked hard and uh, couldn't be more excited. And nine hours later, mission accomplished. Jeremy Clare and the entire Survivor Summit team reached the roof of Africa at 19,341 feet, the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro, sending a message that extreme recovery is possible. Survivor Summit! Despite his inspiring success, like most survivors, Jeremy is still looking over his shoulder. You don't know if it's ever going to come back. I'm always scared to say, hey, I'm cancer-free, and maybe for the moment I am, but I guess it doesn't really matter to me. Um, I'm I just say gonna... it all the time. He's cancer-free. <laughs> I'm so happy I'm when just, they said those words. <laughs> I'm just going to keep moving on and you know, doing the best I can, assuming it's not there, and living my life. Growing bolder with relentless forward progress. That's the Jeremy Jungling way. What an inspiring guy, and, and what an amazing couple. And talk about moving forward with your life soon after returning from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Jeremy and Claire announced that they were expecting their first child. And, and Bill, yet again, this is another example of a cancer survivor realizing the importance of now. And I think that's the best part of the story, Mark. He's not waiting until he's older to chase his dreams. And it's a lesson that we can all learn today. Do it while you still can. Get out there, folks. Coming up, when she was in fourth grade, she saw her aunt in a history book. When she got home, she learned for the first time that the woman she called Auntie Rosa was the mother of the civil rights movement. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. The average human lives about 30,000 days if we're lucky. By the time we're 65, there's only about 7,000 left if we're lucky. Time should be like any desirable commodity in that the less of it there is, the more valuable it becomes. But when it comes to time, our culture wants us to believe just the opposite. It begins devaluing each successive day beyond what it considers to be our prime. This may be the most damaging lie inflicted upon us by our ageist culture. We're not made to withdraw from life as we get older. We're made to lean into it. We're made to be bold and to take risk. We're made to help others and to protect the weak. We are the greatest problem-solving, kicking fearless, selfless, empathetic animal that has ever walked the face of the earth. We didn't choose to be all that. It chose us. It's in our DNA. So let's quit suppressing it and start expressing it. Let's quit apologizing for getting older and start celebrating it. This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. Want to talk for a minute about Rosa Parks. Of course, she was the woman who sparked the civil rights movement in 1955, for refusing to move to the back of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, and with that action, Rosa became the mother of the civil rights movement, a symbol in the fight for equality. But what was she really like and what was she really thinking? Rosa politely declined to provide those answers during her life, but they are now being revealed by her niece, Sheila McCauley Keys, in a new memoir, My Auntie Rosa Parks. Let's welcome Sheila McCauley Keys. Hey, Sheila, how are you? Good. I'm doing fine this morning. Well, congratulations on your book. And let's make sure we get the ancestry right here. Rosa lost her job after the arrest and moved to Detroit, which is where you're from. Your father was Rosa's only sibling. And since she never had any children, in many ways, she treated you like her own, didn't she? Oh, yes, she did. We were uh, like her surrogate uh, children. Did you have any idea, uh, other than that she was Auntie Rosa, what she was all about, her her place in history as you were a young girl? 
No, as a young girl, I just knew her as uh, my Auntie Rosa. I didn't know she was Rosa Parks until I saw her in a history book. And the other kids laughed at me when I said that was my Auntie Rosa. Mm. And they didn't believe me. That's Rosa Parks, they were telling me. So they laughed at me. So I ran home and asked my parents, is this Rosa Parks? And they said, why, yes. And that was the end of that story. I found out that was my aunt. It was like around the fourth grade or something that I found out. But nobody, um, Auntie Rosa, she never said, hey, I'm Rosa Parks. She, I, I was always, she was always Auntie Rosa to me. I, I think so. there was a part two, Sheila, to that story the day after you learned that when you walked back into the fourth grade <laughs> class and said, listen, you guys. It really is. And I'm sure that must have been so, uh, you know, even to a fourth grader, you certainly must have been overwhelmed with questions and and, and interest in, in, in her in a new way. Oh, it's like you're very proud, but I couldn't believe it. And then the way that we were um, raised, like young people, children, we didn't have many questions to run up and ask adults. We never did. When we were older, we could. Um, young people were, Auntie Rosa said, it's some things that adults know what a young person can handle, and that's what they give them. They, we were never given too much information. That's one reason why I truly think I never knew that Auntie Rosa was Rosa Parks. Hmm. You know, to, that to, information was not given to a fourth grader or a third grader. It just wasn't. Uh, folks, we're talking to know it. We're talking to Sheila McCauley Keys, who is the niece of uh, Rosa Parks, who, of course, is the uh, you know really the mother of the, the the civil rights movement. And and I think to some extent, Sheila, we all play different roles with different people. And obviously, to you, she was just your aunt. But so much uh, there, there's so much curiosity about what she was really like back in the early '50s. And of course, her public persona is that of a shy, stoic, genteel woman who just wanted to get home that day. But her journals and letters that have been released recently reveal, you know, something different—a more motivated, uh, committed agitator, if you will. So, so what did happen that day? Was it her plan to make a statement, or had she simply just had enough? I think it wasn't a plan, but I think it was something she was prepared for if it should happen. She worked with the NAACP, and she worked trying to get people registered to vote. So she knew from early childhood all the way up to she was 41, 42 when this happened, all these uh, events, she knew what Jim Crow law was. She didn't like it, and she was working with organizations to try to do something about it. So she knew in her mind that it was wrong and it needs to be righted. So I think that uh, that day on the bus, uh, she wasn't planning to uh, start any uh, trouble. She sat down in the colored section, and she stated a white person came in and sat down. And the bus driver gets up. The bus is not full of people. He gets up and says, well, you have to move, because the white person was sitting where too close to her, so she needed to move. There always had to be a row of seats, a whole row on both sides of the bus, between colored passengers and white passengers so that they would not be close together. And so it wasn't that the bus was crowded or he told her to get up and get to the back of a bus. That wasn't the Jim Crow law, you know, or what the rule was. You just had to have that space between the colored and the white. And so she simply said no. And the way my aunt says no is just no. Her voice does not go up or down. It stays an even tone. She'll just tell you no. And if she means no, she'll say no. And she said she was not tired. She was just tired of uh, being bullied by this particular system, this Jim Crow. And she knew that that had to stop. And I think she was working towards that. And you have to remember that she was some early child. She had lived under... This Jim Crow under the system of things, whites only, colored only, under the system. And as a, a young lady, I think she had had enough. 
enough of it. And I don't think she was there with anyone to uh, record what happened, but I don't think it was an organized plan thing that she was just going to uh, uh, become a militant little lady that day. She just had said no, and that was her answer. You know, Sheila, she, tell you that, mm. she never sought the limelight, and a lot of people don't even realize she lived to the age of 92, passing away in 2005. What can you, to wrap this thing up here in 30 seconds or so, what life lessons do you think that did you learn from this amazing woman? I always tell everybody this is my favorite, favorite of all. And uh, that is uh, the golden rule, and that is to uh, always treat others the way you want to be treated. My aunt, she truly lived her life that way. My grandmother taught my aunt and my father. She raised them by herself. She taught them that, to always treat others the way you want to be treated. That's the basis of anything, is to do that. We will all get along if we would just do that treat our neighbors the way we want to be treated. Well, Sheila McCauley Keys, you have got to be mighty proud of your aunt, as all Americans are. Her new book is called My Auntie Rosa Parks, A Unique and Inside Perspective on the woman who literally lit the fuse that led to the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, one of the most influential women in the history uh, of the Republic. Uh, Thanks so much, Sheila, and, and good luck with your book. Coming up, one of the most amazing cancer survivors we've ever met. A guy who's beaten six types of cancer and in his 70s is one of the world's top triathletes. That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder, and our next guest is not just a survivor. He is a survivor of 10 bouts with six different types of cancer. Mark, he's had something like 20 surgeries, and I believe he still has to get a monthly chemo shot just to keep his liver cancer under control to this day. Yeah, an amazing guy, and that alone, of course, is more than enough to get our attention. But uh, get this, folks. He is also one of the world's top triathletes in the 70- to 75-year-old age group. At last count, he has completed over 280 races. He's averaging more than nine a year, including grueling half Ironmans. That's seven. 70.3 miles. Always a pleasure to chat with our good friend, Tony Handler. Tony, how are you? Oh, great, guys. How are you? You, you know, I, I guess right off the top, how in the heck do you keep going? I mean, it uh, you know, one bout with cancer, two bouts with cancer, it seems like some people can't get past, you know, a major challenge, and they just keep coming at you. How do you keep your spirits up? And more importantly, how do you keep running? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, it's getting tougher and tougher, and... uh uh, but I enjoy it, and um, as long as his body cooperates, I'll keep doing it. But I've been very fortunate to be able to, you know, get through, survive that many different cancers and and surgeries and all this crazy nonsense. I've been very fortunate that way, and and uh, and and thank God uh, that that the body continues to cooperate, and as long as it does, I'll I'll keep going. So, uh, and, I, and I guess it's all the attitude, you know. I just uh, I feel like the positive attitude is the thing that's helped me get through all those kinds of things and in addition to some great doctors and great hospitals great medicines and all that good stuff but the the attitude i think is just as important and and boy tony i I try to do i think somewhere in your recovery you were so happy just to be moving again you set a goal for yourself i i wonder if you wished you you had thought it through you at one point said that you wanted to run 300 races and here you are up to 280 
And at the well, let's see. Yeah, you're right. I it, that's still a goal. It's 300, and I'm up to 282 now. So I figure, uh, well, probably not too much. I would imagine by the third year, I, I hopefully three more years, I should hit that one. I don't know what I can continue that nine, nine a year thing. Oh, I'm going to try. But uh, we I tied up my grand my granddaughters at the traveling softball team stuff now, and, and we spent a lot of weekends uh, following her around with her softball game. So I miss a few triathlons that way. So I might not be able to keep up the nine, but I'll get there. We'll get to the three hundred. Can can you believe it? All I've got right now is that seven doing the uh, half Ironman for every one. The, it's my my second goal is doing the half Ironman every year for my seventy. Uh, my birthday's in the seventies, and I've got the first five in already because I'm seventy five. I already signed up for uh, the one in April in Haines City, which will be number seventy six. But the problem is that the Ironman is. Uh, up with a new rule this year, but it's going to make it a little challenging because they, they've got a new rule. They've got a cutoff time now. They never had a cutoff time for the the uh, half Ironman. They always did for the full, but not for the half. And they've got a cutoff time of eight and a half hours. Well, my last last year was my time was eight hours and twenty six minutes. So that gives me a four minute leeway for the for this year, and and that's not much of a leeway when you sort of consider I've been getting a little bit slower every year. So. Um, that's going to be an interesting challenge, but uh, I'll see if I can speed things up and, and get number six in. Well, they should adjust that cutoff time for the older age groups, but we'll get into that uh, another time. I don't know how you yeah. do it, Tony. If, if something takes more than a minute, uh, uh, I'm not really all that interested in it. Um, you know, we, we met you years and years ago. Bill and I live in this world of sound bites. You know, we, we don't collect them, but we remember them, and, and some stand out above and, uh, others. One of your sound bites, I, I can never get out of my mind because I realized at that point, even though you win a lot of gold medals, you don't compete to win gold medals. You compete simply to cross the finish line because the finish line represents victory to you, not over your competitors, but over cancer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I've always felt that way. I've always felt that uh, uh, that's, that's who I'm racing against every time I go out there. Uh, and I, I sort of feel like uh, just crossing that finish line is, is considered a win in the win category. So I guess right now that's 282 wins, and um, and that that's what it's all about. I, if I sure if I can beat some other people, that's fine. But my my whole idea is to get that finish line and just and just keep that that thing going up to 300 if we can, and 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 above if the uh, if the body cooperates. But uh, that's what it's all about. 76, 76 years old, Tony. I think there's a lot of doctors out there that says that's impossible. That could never have happened. How, how do you feel these days? Can, can you, can you well, go? I'm feeling good. I still get the, uh, like you did mention, the monthly chemo shot. I still do get that. And, um, and they keep telling me, oh, well, this is going to cut down your energy and you're not going to be able to do that stuff much longer. But hey, I don't, I don't buy that stuff. I'll, I'll just keep it going. And and sure, I'm, I'm getting slower every year. That's what concerns me about the um, making that eight and a half hour cutoff time. Because uh, there's no question that that stuff's doing a job on the the energy and the speed level. But uh, but again, that, none of that matters. I just get across the finish line and I've, I beat him one more time. And that's what it's all about. Can you go a day, Tony? Can you go an hour? Can you go ten minutes without thinking about cancer? No, not really, because it, and now it's not only my wife. My wife and I have been married for 55 years, and, and 32 of those years have been dealing with this cancer stuff, and now she's part of it. She's now a three-time cancer survivor of two different kinds of cancers. So between the two of us, uh, we do a lot of thinking about that, and you can't help it because we spend a lot of time running back and forth. She's also a patient at Moffitt Cancer Center down in Tampa, so the two of us spend a lot of time running back and forth there. So yeah, you can't help but thinking about it. and. Um, but hopefully, uh, in a positive way, we've both been very lucky to survive the things we've survived, and and um, and uh, we just keep on plugging. And, well, you, you have a beautiful wife, Tony, and please give her our best. And, you know, another example that you can't fight these things alone, folks. You've got to have support. And, and Tony, in our final 20 seconds, if you will, not only have you survived all of this cancer stuff, you've had an aortic valve replacement, you had half of your precancerous thyroid removed. What's your takeaway? Right. What, what's the moral? What can we learn about you, uh, uh, from you, about life in general? Well, what I, my, 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 slogan for myself has always been just don't ever get up, give up and and I think after 32 years that that's helped me very well because I just feel like if I can not never give up I can I'll be able to keep going 
And then, of course, you got to throw in eat right, exercise, laugh a lot. Those are the kinds of things I sort of believe uh, keep me going in uh, the positive attitude and, and just not ever giving up. Hey, Tony Handler. Tony. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the inspiration. Thank you for the example. Thank you for raising the bar, and thank you for showing us what is possible with a lot of work and a little bit of help. Tony Handler. Coming up, we're headed overseas to speak with one of the world's most influential voices in the growing effort to destigmatize aging. That's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. This is Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And our next guest is an award-winning British journalist, author, and sociologist, And she's big time, too, Mark, a big thinker. She's won the award for the best independent voice on older people issues in the Older People in the Media Awards. Yeah, she is out there, folks, trying to change the narrative surrounding aging, which, as we all know, is largely a narrative of decline and resistance. Her latest book is called How to Age, and it cuts through all of that and helps us all understand the opportunity, the beauty, even the excitement of aging. Let's find out more as we welcome her from her home in North London, Ann Carp. Hey, Ann, how are you? I'm doing very well, Mark. Is that Mark or is that Bill? Uh, no, this is Mark, yeah. Okay. Uh, Bill, Hi, <laughs> Bill, I'm fine. And, yeah. we're, we're, we're thrilled to talk to you. Uh, congratulations on your book. Congratulations on the recognition you're receiving. And, and thanks again for being such a positive voice because to a large degree – I think we've all been brainwashed by culture in general, media in particular, to have an extremely negative view about aging. What do you think is responsible for that? What's the incentive behind all this youth worshiping that we do? Gosh, well, that's a very good question and a very big question. I I think there are an awful lot of of reasons behind it. I mean, one of the main ones is historical. Um, And there have been some brilliant American historians in particular who've pointed out how things started to change really around the end of the um, 18th century and again in the 19th century. And I would argue in the last century that really accelerated. And what happened was we lost a sense of the entire lifespan. You know, that you start at the beginning and each stage has a role to play and is important. And um, we lost that sense. And what came in its place was the idea that aging was some kind of flaw or uh, medical problem to which a scientific solution needed to be found. And I think that's behind a lot of it. There's also the, it's also the case that there's a lot of money to be made from, um, it, you know, being awful to older people and making people anxious about age and wanting to deny it. Well, much like we do here at Growing Boulder, and you are trying to reorient the entire way that society views aging, trying to turn it around from something people fear and dread to something worth celebrating. So let me ask you the question that we get all the time. What is it about aging that's worth celebrating? Well, that's a very, very good question as well. I, I mean, I should say that I'm, uh, when you say I, I'm trying to overturn the narrative, it's true, but I also feel that there's a counter-narrative that has developed uh, at the same time, which is also very disturbing, which is the, the kind of, oh, we're baby boomers, aging doesn't exist, we've vanquished aging, we've overcome aging, aging is meaningless. And I don't think that's correct either, because aging is meaningful it's worth celebrating because it's a privilege you know all around the world there are people who don't get that privilege who never get to be older 
So that's one respect in which um, I think it's worth celebrating. I think it's worth celebrating a life lived, particularly if it's lived fully. And whereas I don't believe in this other stereotype of ageing, that one automatically becomes wise and, and serene. I mean, I'm still waiting for serenity <laughs> to kick in with myself, and I may be waiting, waiting a very long time. Um, I do think that as one gets older, certain things begin to happen. And one of them, not for everyone, because we all become uh, different when we age. We all age in our own way. But one of the things that a lot of people have told me uh, have happened for them is that they begin to care less what other people think and what other people think they should do and and listen more to themselves in in the words of the wonderful american poet may sarton she said she loved being 70 because i am become more fully myself and i think that is the opportunity that age gives us Folks, we are talking with Ann Carf, who's written, uh, it's really a very quick read, but a fascinating and thought-provoking uh, book that's called How to Age. And, and Ann, not only does our culture, and certainly here in the States, and I, I, and I know the U.K. is probably the same, not only does our culture make us fear aging, to a large extent, it ages us by influencing how we feel, how we move, how we act. Uh, we're really self-sabotaging to some degree, aren't we? Well, we are, but I would say that, the, the, you know, I would put self in inverted commas because, it, as you say, it's the culture that does that to us. There's a wonderful book by a colleague of mine, um, Margaret uh, Morgenthal-Gallet, who, who's, and the title of her book is Aged by Culture, you know, and that's exactly what it does. And there's been a lot of interesting research that shows that people who are exposed to more negative images of aging um, then internalize them and they become self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it's clear that we uh, develop our ideas about how we should age and how we will age in response to the culture around us. And if we are surrounded by not necessarily just positive uh, uh, images, because, I'm, you know, I, I'm not Pollyanna. I don't want to say, oh, you know, everything is wonderful. Um, but the fact is that there are losses and gains at every stage in the life process. They're not particular to being older, because after all, we start aging the moment we're born. And, you know, being a teenager is a bit of a challenge. Um, being, uh, you know, a parent with a young child is a challenge. Uh, being bereaved is a challenge. So we are exposed to challenges throughout our life. Um, and we have good things happen to us throughout our life. I think this idea that all the good happens when we're young and all the bad when we're old is such a distortion of what most of us experience. Well, you know, people don't care about looking at the good and they're terrified to look at the bad. So you, it's, it's in a weird situation. What is going what is going to overcome the challenge? Does it start with... Oh, well, that's, that's, um, that's, a, big, that's a big question. Um, I think there are, there are a number of things. I mean, first of all, we've got this changing composition, um, age composition of the population. So some of that is going to happen um, possibly by itself in just that uh, societies are going to have to adjust to the growing numbers of older people. But I feel very strongly that... Um, contact, intergenerational contact between older and younger people is key, both in a formal sense, you know, through various schemes and projects, but also through informal ways and friendships. Because the minute you start to meet an actual individual of a different age, you're not putting them into a generic category of the old and the young. And you're seeing people much more as individuals. And I think that starts to challenge some of the, the, the stereotypes. Plus, I think the more that people speak out, I mean, I know that for myself, the quality of my life is far better than when I was younger. Actually, I've got far more energy than when I was younger because my energy was taken up with all kinds of other things, um, preoccupations and anxieties when I was younger. Not that I don't have preoccupations and anxieties now, I certainly do, but I've learned to handle them perhaps um, slightly differently. So I think that it'll be a combination of factors. The growing numbers of older people older people speaking out much more and getting together with other people to challenge the ideas, but also the, um, the, the, the intergenerational contacts that are made, I think that begins to really, in a profound sense, change attitudes.
a very thoughtful and realistic look at how we age. Folks, the book is called How We Age. She is Ann Carp. She's smashing stereotypes. She is out there overturning the anti-aging uh, propaganda that we all are exposed to each and every day. Uh, Ann, thanks so much, and good luck with your book. And before we leave, a reminder to stretch. And yeah, we're talking literally, but also figuratively. Lifelong learning is one of the most important keys to active longevity. And we're not talking about just learning new information, but learning new activities. Pablo Picasso was still painting masterpieces in his 90s and not at all in the same style that he did decades ago. He continued to challenge himself to grow, saying, I am always doing that which I cannot in order that I may learn how to do it. And folks, that is what we call Growing Boulder. We'll see you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears. Fire and flaming road Using ideas as my map We'll meet on edges soon Said I Proud me heated brow Ah, but I was so much older then I'm younger than that now Half-right prejudice leap for Ripped out Stay.